Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Let me begin by telling you a little story. So back in the mid to late 1960s, uh, I was living in a house uh, out by a lake with two other guys. And uh, one of the guys had a friend named Jimmy Walls who would later go and start his own band. And Jimmy Walls was like the coolest guy that I knew. And he was very passionate about music. Uh, and the guy that I was living with is a guy named Jesse. And one of the things that Jesse liked was something called the Incredible String Band. Uh, and they were sort of this psychedelic folk band from the 1960s, very much an acquired taste. And uh, when Jimmy Walls came to visit his friend Jesse, he would walk stride into our house. And if the Incredible String Band was playing, and this was back in the days of phonographs, uh, he would stride without speaking, without breaking stride. He would stride over to the phonograph player, lift up the needle, and put it in its cradle. Uh, and then he would turn. <laughs> he would turn to the rest of the room and say, "You want to know the definition of irony? Buddy Holly goes down in an airplane, and the incredible string men—they just keep on playing." Uh, so that's how people feel about music. They get passionate about music. They care about music. But as Ben Ratliff, an amazing critic for the New York Times, uh, he is kind of the guy that you—if you, you read criticism, you notice that he's the one kind of pointing you out of your familiar comfort zone genre and uh, and add all kinds of new music. In his new book, Every Song Ever: Twenty Ways to Listen to Music in an Age of Musical Plenty, uh, he sort of kind of talks about that whole idea that we we get into grooves, uh, to, to use a phonograph image, we get into grooves, we get into certain ideas about what we'll listen to and how we're going to listen to it, uh, and uh, there's so much more out there. So first of all, Ben Ratliff, welcome to this conversation. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. You know, one of our music experts and writers here, Steve Metcalf, says that one of the great cultural shifts and changes was the um, invention of the shuffle feature uh, on an iPod uh, that presumably, uh, I mean, uh, assuming in advance that you have a fairly eclectic uh, collection of music uh, on an iPod, it could kind of change your listening experience. Um, How do you feel about that? How do you feel about the iPod shuffle? I think that's true. And actually, I think it's um, it's still significant. Because uh, we tend to, um, you know, there's a lot of ways to get music now, some of them not legal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we tend to get a lot. Uh, we tend to download a lot. We tend to binge listen, you know, as we as we binge watch TV or whatever. So often, you know, we, we get a whole lot of music onto our hard drives or iPods or whatever that we don't really listen to. And basically what we're doing is we're just making out the outlines of what's of what's out there. We may not ever listen to it unless we use the shuffle function. And the shuffle function enables us to um, get back into the, you know, the back shelves of what we've got. Yeah, I love there's a quote from a friend of yours uh, in the book. He says, uh, now that I've got the entire collection of everything that Mozart ever wrote, I realize I don't need to listen to any of it anymore. That, that, that state yeah, of, isn't yeah, that go ahead. strange? Yeah. I, I felt I I felt like I totally knew what he was talking about when he said that. Um, we have changed the w- the way we absorb music has has definitely changed. We take huge amounts of it in, 
And then what? Well, maybe we listen to a lot of it, uh, just kind of gorge ourselves on it. or maybe. Or, and how deeply does it go in? I'm not sure. Actually, I don't know. I don't know how, how well the brain retains huge amounts of information at once, but that's that's what we're doing. The interesting thing, though, is we're doing that and then we have the rest of our lives to process it, to learn about it. Right. And In any case, the, the, the whole landscape is, has shifted for how we listen. Right. And we're going to get down to brass tacks here in just a few minutes and play some music and, and talk a, a little bit more about it. I w- will say that, Ben, your essays um, are uh, infused with your own eclecticism, and it really is uh, a matter of 100 characters going by in between uh, a mention of uh, Mahler and somebody named DJ Screw uh, that you have to be prepared to leap around from genre to genre with you. But that, you know, that does raise some interesting questions. And it's the iPod shuffle question again, is, you know, to listen eclectically, to have, uh, um, you know, Bruckner uh, pop up right after uh, DJ Screw or mm-hmm. your old Droog uh, is an interesting thing. On the other hand, one of the things that we used to do, and I think we do it less and less in a lot of different ways, is deal with something as an opus. In other words, the White Album uh, comes out uh, and you just sit up in your room for three days listening to nothing else. Um, certainly not shuffling it with anything. Certainly not interspersing it with anything, but simply wrestling with whatever it is that the Beatles uh, have suddenly decided to do here. And I feel like we're not doing that so much anymore. We're just inserting things into that semi-randomized flow that you're talking about. Yeah, well, there's a couple of questions that come up here. One is, how important are albums anymore? Uh, That's something that music writers talk about all the time. Uh, The answer seems to be less important than they were. Uh, you know, so, the individual song is is the preferred unit. Um, however, it's, you know, cultural, with culture, things aren't, it's not binary. It never is. It's never just black and white. Either albums are 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 everything or they're nothing. It's just not the case. Um, I do think that people are doing deep, deep listening to albums still, to songs still. I'm not making an argument in this book that uh, everybody's gone completely superficial in their listening to an individual thing. Um, um, I'm I'm just I'm I'm warning against a situation uh, that we you know now that we have everything because of the streaming services or what seems like everything in our pockets immediately available. What are we going to do with that? Are we going to stick with what we know best, aided by the streaming services who kind of want to uh, appeal to our comfort zone? Um, or are we going to strike out and, you know, to the areas that we don't know about so much and become bigger and broader listeners? I mean, some of that um, goes to the kind of chopping down of all kinds of things, though. And so let me give a a specific example. And this may be less true in the world of New York music than it is uh, elsewhere. But but symphony orchestras these days, in order to keep people engaged and people who are sort of used to listening in smaller amounts and having and have kind of a music having a kind of musical attention disorder, uh, they'll they'll, you know, maybe put together. I just went to a program that was a wonderful program, but 
it had like, you know, a two minutes or three minutes of a Mahler prelude. And then it had only the balcony scene in Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet and so forth. There's this kind of cherry picking of music that was put together to keep everybody's attention and uh, keep people from getting restless. You know, God forbid anybody would have to listen to an entire symphony. Um, and, And there's a little bit of that that goes on that's just smart marketing by any orchestra, but also a little bit that's going on to maybe address a, a style of, cog- of musical cognition we've slipped into. I guess so. I never know what is the answer to this question. I mean, we've become, as as consumers of culture, we, and like, what? who do I mean when I say we? I, I don't know. A, a generalized version of I, I guess. But a, a lot of people I encounter um, seem to be able to take in vast amounts of stuff, you know, whether that means watching the entire series of a new TV show when it arrives on Netflix all in one day, or, um, uh, you know, you find out about a new band that you've never heard of before. You know, some, let's say Lemmy from Motorhead dies and somebody says, hey, Motorhead, that was an interesting band. So you go onto the internet, you look up all the records, boom, you, you got them all. And you listen to them all. I mean, and also, or you're reading, you know, Elena Ferrante's four-part <laughs> novel or mm-hmm. Knausgaard's six-part novel. You know, you're able to take in enormous amounts of things. And apparently, at the same time, we also have an attention deficit problem. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we can't pay attention to anything. So I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't really know. Mm. Uh, I don't know how to characterize that kind of thing. Well, before the attention of our listeners wanders off, we should play them some music. I'm going to um, – some of the fun of this book, uh, Every Song Ever by Ben Ratliff is – I mean it is – it does come more or less on the heels of Copeland's book about how to listen to music, although it's a very different set of arguments. But um, it's a reminder that various states of attentiveness are rewarding to the listener in various different ways. So we're going to take the Ronettes, uh, Be My Baby, and let Ben talk a little bit uh, about um, – what he hears in that, what you might also hear in that, uh, how it might locate you uh, in a time or place. Uh, But first, let's hear a little bit of Be My Baby. Ben Ratliff, you write, you can hear it in small imperfections within Be My Baby or things that couldn't be rehearsed and faked. Ronnie Spector's accent, the throbbing murk of strings and reeds and background vocals. You can hear it by trying to listen to the drums alone or one voice alone, imagining yourself at a single fixed point in the studio or the recording space. So what's what's it in that formulation? What, what can we hear? This is a chapter about... Um memory and history and using that as a through line to connect a lot of different kinds of recordings. Um, Be My Baby 
is a song uh, with great um, great power as memory because a lot of it, a lot of us hear it once and never forget it. Um, mostly because of the drumbeat, and and also um, it has a kind of historical power because that that drumbeat contains history. Um, that drumbeat contains the the ghost basically of of a very basic Cuban rhythmic unit called the tresillo, uh, which threaded through the Charleston and New Orleans jazz and R and B and early '60s rock and roll and reggaeton. Now and um, and it was a beat that was you know reused over and over again by many many people. Uh, and I bring it up in the chapter because there was a moment several years ago when I was reviewing a whole bunch of new ba- or checking out the work of a whole bunch of new bands that were going to play at the CMJ Festival in New York. And that beat kept coming up over and over and over again. It, all of a sudden, that beat was in vogue again. I forget when this was, maybe five years ago. Um, so it's a that's a chapter about how memory and history connects songs. Um, and the way this book works is, if I, if I may, yeah. just kind of briefly talk about how it works. Um, it's, like, it's like an old music appreciation book, you know, from the first half of the 20th century, where uh, the, the writer is telling people, um, you know, here, here, here's some guides, here's some guideposts about how to listen to music. But um, I'm trying to do it in this particular time, given our particular circumstances, where we have, you know, seemingly everything available to us instantly in our pockets. And also, there's no one ruling kind of music. In those old books from the first half of the 20th century, they basically only address classical music. Now we have to look at classical music as just one of many possible kinds. So so what to do? Um, my feeling is I wanted to write a book that was not a canon, not a narrowing of choices and saying these are the basic works you ought to know if you want to understand music. My book is about expansive listening. Um, so I'm suggesting a vocabulary basically for people to talk about music in a way that can connect different kinds of music that are that are quite far apart. So you take a category like um, um, slowness in music, and you can connect Sarah Vaughan singing a slow ballad in the 50s. You can connect Shostakovich's last string quartets. You can connect DJ Screw, who you mentioned earlier, the great uh, 90s hip-hop producer who made amazingly slowed-down productions. And just at, with slowness as the through line, you can deal with a whole lot of different kinds of music. And my my feeling is, why not? Why shouldn't we be thinking about music in this wide perspective now? Because because we can, because we have it, we have access. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other alternative is is staying within our comfort zone. Let's um, let's do that. Let's uh, since you mentioned slowness, first of all, um, sure. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about it, and maybe to set us up here, since you mentioned Sarah Vaughan, let's hear her singing "Lover Man." I don't know why, but I'm feeling. 
so sad I long to try Something I've never had Never had no kissing Oh, what I've been missing Love a man, oh, where can you be? The night is so cold And I'm so all alone I'd give my soul Ooh, I hate to fade it, actually. I want to listen to the whole thing. Uh, but yeah. uh, we, we have to economize here. Uh, so, Ben Ratliff, uh, tell us about... Uh, it's hard to imagine a more lontissimo version of this. Uh, tell us uh, what slowness does for Sarah Vaughan, or what she does with slowness. Um, Sarah Vaughan had used slow tempos as a, as a specialty. It was something she could do very well, retain the intensity while slowing down the tempo seriously. And and she, you know, preferred to do it with certain musicians. Um, when you... Now, so when you listen to this piece of music, you know, calling it a ballad doesn't even really begin to describe what's going on here. And remember, we are we are the modern listener. <laughs> we're, the, we're the listener with more power than we used to have because we, because we have access to everything. So... What was that like, that listening? That was a listening experience. You know, when you get into that piece of music and stay with it, that's an experience. And so what are the marks of that experience, listening to tempo that's that's that slow? Well, uh, it gives you a chance to kind of get inside the song. Um, It gives you a chance to have thoughts like, where where is this taking me? Where is it going to go? And how long is it going to take? And what's the and what's the outcome going to be? So you have these thoughts about um, um, what basically about you know life and death and what is certain and why are we moving so quickly? Um, it, slowness can be you know the the proper speed of taking life in thoroughly without missing the details. Um, so these are some thoughts about slowness that can be applied to. A whole lot of other slow music too. Well, yes, and it, it does seem to me that that quickness can sometimes obscure painful truths, particularly the truth of death, which you uh, say in, in the book. One example I think uh, about is, uh, and in fact, the uh, wife of Jimmy Webb is often sitting in an office down the hallway from where I'm sitting right now. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when Jimmy Webb sings his own song, Galveston, he sings it very slowly, much more slowly than the uh, kind of highly produced Glenn Campbell version that most people know. And and yeah. when he sings it slowly, you realize how much death there is. You know, and I clean my gun and dream of Galveston. You know, I'm so afraid of dying. These these aren't glib things that he's saying that he's and and not until the thing is slowed down quite a bit do you grasp that. Slowness really intensifies um uh, the emotion in a song, but also the the musical parts of a song, the musical the musical gestures in a song. It's a it's an amazing thing. Hmm. By the way, speaking of where I'm sitting, I'm sitting also probably about 
I don't know, 15, 20 blocks from where, from where Hal Blaine, the drummer uh, on Be My Baby, grew up. He grew up in here in Hartford, Connecticut. Oh, uh, no kidding. And J-Mo, another drummer that you like, uh, lives uh, about, I don't know, two miles from here. He, last time I knew, anyway, J-Mo, who's the sort of second drummer on the Allman Brothers, uh, he lives about two miles from here in Bloomfield, Connecticut, or did last time I know. So there's lots mm. of, you can just walk around with Ben Ratliff's book around this neighborhood, and I could point some things out to you. Even, <laughs> Possibly even Jimmy Webb's wife. But, um, yeah, I, I, I guess the other thing that, about slowness that intrigues me is that sometimes it's just a choice, right? Like when Cassandra Wilson covers a song, uh, if you hear Cassandra, Cassandra Wilson's covering X, you know, your default assumption is she's going to slow it down, right? I mean, it's kind of what she does. I mean, it gives her a lot of chance to explore not so much, I think, questions of mortality or deep emotion, but just what are the other musical colors there are that went whisking by uh, when the first artist did it. Yeah, uh, it's better suited. Slow, slow tempos are definitely better suited to some people than others. Cassandra Wilson is a great example because she has so much texture in her voice. Uh, and she can use that, you know, a, a lot of that texture to full advantage um, when the when the beat slows down. She can just do more with her with her voice. And I think also find different places to, places to put the beats. You can do that, I think, more easily. Mm-hmm. When, when the, um, That's right. When this when there's the, more space. Absolutely right. There's more space around each beat. Yeah. And you can get into that sort of science of or risk uh, of how far can you go from from the beat in your phrasing well we've got to take a break here i wish i had a good cassandra wilson song to play out of this with but maybe we'll have one later uh we're talking to ben ratliff we'll be back after this the man i love took from my best that girl got lucky, stolen back again. You better come on in my kitchen, cause it's going to be raining out
we're back. We're back with Ben Ratliff. Uh, his book is Every Song Ever, 20 Ways to Listen in an Age of Musical Plenty. This is kind of a roadmap uh, that uh, helps you connect music from disparate genres with common themes, ways in which you can maybe sort of uh, throw a lasso uh, around the work of three or four different artists all at once with things that they have in common, but also interesting ways to focus on individual artists. I had never thought before of the three ages of Mariah Carey, but I will never stop thinking about it now that I've read that book. Uh, anyway, Ben, um, I want to begin uh, this segment with, I, I think it's really interesting and useful to, to summon up some of these ideas that you give us, ways of thinking about how music works upon us. So one of the things that you talk about uh, is repetition. Uh, let's uh, play a little bit of Steve Reich uh, for organs before we get into what you have to say about, about how repetition works in music. Okay, that's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but uh, uh, tell us more about it, Ben. That's a 15-minute piece. That's from a 15-minute piece called Four Organs by Steve Reich. Um, and uh, it was it's a, an early piece by Steve Reich, and it was a controversial one. Um, uh, it provoked great opprobrium when, <laughs> when it was first played in uh, at, at Carnegie Hall. Um uh, people uh, yelled, you know, people said, I can't take it anymore. Um, the idea is uh, the, and th- this is something you, you understand when you listen to it for a few minutes. It's, it's one chord played by four different organists, um, but they start to, they, they repeat the chord, but then they start to stagger it. They start to play different parts of it, almost like a game of relay or hide and seek or something. Um, so it does, it keeps changing. And it strikes me as a really great example of repetition in music because great repetition in music is not the same exact thing over and over and over again. It's actually a very gradual change against a constant. Um, and this has, it has a very deep, I think, sort of psychological f- effect on you. It, it puts you into a mindset of patience and waiting and trying to think about what comes next. Um, or not. And Or not. You or, mean it, because it you might shut off? Well, yeah. I mean, I, what I, the linkage that I would be making, and I'm going to, um, I'm blanking on the last name of the composer, but Jesus' Blood Never Failed Me Yet by Gavin, somebody, you have that. Briars. Briars, Gavin Briars. So that's, this is similar. This is the repetition of uh, a sampled uh, vocal phrase with sort of strings welling up behind it. At very, but it, I mean, it really is, um, for me, a very powerful piece of music. It, it, it's extremely repetitious. On the other hand, I think the worst thing I could do listening to it is to think about what comes next. Uh, it seems to me that the key is to not, I mean, I- any more than you would think about what comes next if you were meditating. Uh, oh, so you mean the whole point is to stay in the moment? 
Yeah, and 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 mm-hmm. and to be, I mean, and to drop expectations and then get pulled some instinctual way uh, to to get out of your own conscious control. I don't know. What do you think about that? That's pretty. Uh, that's pretty lofty. I mean, <laughs> I I I I would love to even experience listening that way uh, ever. I I and I'm sure it's possible. Everybody listens differently. Um, I I guess I I am I am always thinking about. Where is this going to go, and what, and how am I implicated in this song, um, and what's the, I, you know, I feel like, you know, music, music doesn't exist without an audience. Really, it's created f- so that somebody is going to hear it. You know, it's it's a two way, it's a two way operation, and so music always there's always kind of a, a tacit contract between the musician and the listener. So when you listen to any piece of music you start to think about what are the terms of this contract, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh what's what, what am I expect how am I expected to feel? What what you know, um uh is this fulfilling uh, the expectations that it's laying out for me? That sort of thing. Yeah, and I th- I I well, first of all, I mean, obviously that's one way to listen, and then there are other ways. I mean, I I totally recommend just lying down on the couch and putting "Jesus Blood Never Failed Me Yet" or whatever your mm-hmm. equivalent of that is, and not thinking about any of those things and just sort of seeing what happens. But, but yeah, I, I think for many people, though, the challenge is kind of um, sort of back to, back to some of the, the, the purpose of your book and particularly some of the books like it that came before. For, for example, I am not well-tutored enough in modern composition to kind of understand what that contract is. And so, but I, on the other hand, I go regularly to a series where some of the great uh, new chamber groups in America pass through the city where I live and they play Ligeti and stuff like that. And so I have my own way, you know, my own way. Sure. If I'm listening to Ligeti, I sort of, th- I start thinking about buildings in cities and kind of post-war urbanization and estrangement and what that probably felt like. And I begin to picture little go. pieces of art and stuff like that. And I don't know yeah. whether that's my, my – that may, may not be the deal Ligeti was making with me, but that's my deal. doesn't matter. Uh, you bring to music the tools that, that you have. Um, and, you know, uh, I guess this book – well – I've I've been a music critic at the Times for for 20 years now, mm-hmm. and um, I think that when I started, my assumption was the proper way to write about music or to think about music is to zoom in really closely to um, the artist and a specific piece of work, know everything about it, know about uh, the intentions of the piece, what the composer intended, um, what the composer did right before that, right after it, etc. You know, to, like real tight focus. That's fine. That is a that is a decent way to know about music. But as the job went on, and my job is to write about basically all music that is not classical music, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very wide swath. 
and uh, I could be writing from one night to the next about music from from different countries or different centuries. Um, I guess for me, the microscope started to pull back a mm. lot over the years, so that uh, I naturally, as a, as a you know, as a consequence of, of the kind of work I do, I started thinking about music in the big sense. Mm. Um, from in the long view, you know, and I started thinking about what any kind of music has to do with another kind of music. Um, and so, and my my first way in now listening to anything is really about sound, um, approaching it as a listener, experiencing the sound, trying to figure out, you know, what we were talking about. What what is the what are the terms of that tacit contract? Um, and and how does it how does it make me feel? Uh, and I, th for me, I, this seems to be the way to connect, uh, the, the job that we're faced with right now is connecting, mm -hmm. you know, we, we, we have the keys to the enormous library and we can keep them. We can fall asleep in the enormous library. We can wake up in the enormous, you know, nobody's going to take it away from us. So we got to venture out. We got to figure out what's in that library and we got to figure out uh, ways in which we can understand what we encounter. I, I I love the way that in the in the chapter about repetition, you are able to deal with the Steve Reich piece, but also connected in really interesting ways to uh, to James Brown. Uh, you know, to um, and and one of the associations I had at the time too was I remember being a kid in my father's car. Uh, and so this will probably be sometime in the 60s, late 60s, mm -hmm. where suddenly a lot of album-oriented rock stations, they were called, started really to play the blues. Um, right. And, and, but you know, either blues covered by, you know, Johnny or Edgar Winter, but also sometimes by the original, some much more original blues musicians. And there was a ton of repetition in them. You know, there was a, the same phrase repeated over and over again, but, but, right. but allowing other things to happen underneath it or inviting us maybe to get a little bit more deeply into whatever particular thing that phrase said. And it drove, my father was like Harold Schoenberg in your book. It drove my father <laughs> out of his mind. Uh, it was uh -huh. like, he, it was, he would sit there the driving with his hands on the wheel going, say something else. And it, yeah. it's hard to know how to respond, actually, to somebody who's who's having that. You say that Schoenberg saw this, the repetition is kind of a, a little bit infantile or childish. That's right. Um, Harold Schoenberg, who was the New York Times reviewer in 1973 when Steve Reich's Four Organs was, was played, wrote that um, – well, he said the audience reacted as if hot, red hot needles were being inserted under, under fingernails. Um, and – he acknowledged that there was some excitement in the hall, and excitement is good. Um, but then later, a few weeks later, after he had some time to think about it, he wrote a, a, a think piece in the paper about new composers, including Reich. And he said, there is no content in this music. It's pure sound. There's nothing to understand in it. He said, it's art for people who are afraid of art or do not understand what art really is. It's baby stuff. For innocence, um, you know, uh, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't disagree more. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was a very long time ago, and the, you know, the, 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 the range of reference is different now. Um, you have to take. I mean, I think the job of 
being any kind of critic is you 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 try to figure out what the work of art is is trying to accomplish, and then you figure out how well it's accomplishing you know those goals. Um, I think that re- reactions like your dad's or like Harold Schoenberg's are often based in anxiety or or fear that uh oh uh you know this is the beginning of the end. Mm-hmm. If a few people decide that this is, you know, uh, acceptable as music, then everybody's going to decide it's acceptable and um, our standards will disappear. You know? Yeah. No, actually, actually, I pulled pulled a letter to the editor uh, from a newspaper uh, on February 12th. Uh, It begins... Hum a few bars of uptown funk from Bruno Mars' Super Bowl performance. Even if you're a 50-plus mom, like I am, I know you can. You can probably remember the beginning beats and recall the rousing horn section, too. Now try to hum the song performed by Beyonce. I have asked several people, including my 17-year-old son, if they can recall even one phrase or refrain from that song. Uh, and she she goes on and on, kind of comparing uh, that to even uh, the Rolling Stones' "Give Me Shelter" or Marvin Gaye's "What's Going On." Uh, she said, "If Beyonce's song had a well-constructed melody and poetic words about injustice, Super Bowl fans would have been riveted by the dramatic dancing." Uh, Beyonce moved no one and made no point politically or musically. Once again, I think we sort of you sort of hear that anxiety there that the, obviously "Uptown Funk," which I adore, is this you know a song to get us out on the dance floor at wedding. Uh, this was something very, very different, embracing a lot of sonic differences, uh, requiring us to, to do something even newer, Ben Ratliff, which is sometimes watch a video that amplifies our understanding of what the song is. And you see this 50-something mom's anxiety about having to deal with all that. Yeah, well, hummable melody is one measure of how good a song is, but it is by no means the only measure. And to assume that it is the only measure, especially now, um, when <laughs> when that that letter writer could, um, you know, if if she wanted to, is it a she? It's a she. Did you say it yeah, was a she? It's a mom. Yeah. Um, if she if, if she wanted to, could could go online and encounter things that are far less musically dynamic than the Beyonce song she was reacting against, um, but but are, are completely amazing. I mean, you know, it's only th- that is only one measure of the success of a, of a song. Yes. And that, I'm, st- I'm, I'm stating the obvious. Yes. Sorry. Um, and in terms of a repeatable phrase, if you listen to the song once and you can't say I got hot sauce in my bag, what was wrong with you? What were you listening to? We have to take a little break here. Actually, what we'll do is we'll kind of go out uh, with uh, one thing that Ben does in this book is each chapter ends with a, a kind of menu of songs that you could go back to pieces of music you could go back to. So uh, we probably won't have enough time to talk about it. But listen, let's listen as we go out to uh, Arthur Russell. Uh, this is Answers Me from the quietness and chapter of uh, Ben's meditations. Baby, like where the eyes go. Baby, like where the eyes go. Baby,
Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf, with help from Greg Hill, who tweets for us at WNPR Colin. For show pages, articles, and photos, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday, we're back live with The Scramble. And now, back to Colin. We're talking to you, Ben Ratliff, a jazz and pop critic for The New York Times uh, and the author of several books, most recently and significantly for our purposes today, Every Song Ever, 20 Ways to Listen in an Age of Musical Plenty. Um, so uh, what we're going to do here, just to kind of give you once again a sense of the experience that you'll have if you engage with Ben's book, is just sort of talk about some uh, of the uh, individual chapters and ideas that come up, ways of, in which you could link uh, a bunch of music together, leapfrogging, leapfrogging across genres. So um, let's actually, Ben, let's talk about this no- notice, this notion that you have of sprezzatura. I think it does kind of arc back a little bit to Beyonce and, and formation, but um, explain what, what's meant by this term. Well, one of the chapters in my book is called Wasteful Authority. And it's just, it's another quality in music, which one can listen for, which can link a whole lot of different examples and kinds of music. And it's a sort of quality of, I could do this all day, you know, <laughs> or um, it's it's calculated indifference, basically, is what it is. And and it, and it's, as you say, there's an Italian term for it, it's sprezzatura, that comes from Castiglione's book, Book of the Courtier. Once I started thinking about that, it, it's a quality I really love in music because it's a very powerful quality. It has to do with sort of underselling in an interesting way. Sometimes it has to do with... Um, seeming to be bored or seeming to be rolling your eyes or seeming to be slightly above the proceedings. Um, one of the examples that comes to mind for me is is Tommy Duncan, the singer from Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, the great Western swing band, who had a real lazy, drawly kind of voice and seemingly like never, didn't seem to kind of rise to the challenge of doing something great and intense within a three three minute song, but well, still he had amazing he had amazing power. Let's uh, hear a little bit of that. This is a keep knocking, but you can't come in. So, uh, Ben Ratliff, I don't know whether I've uh, completely comprehended this concept uh, as well as I could, but it, it feels to me as though it might be, in some ways, the difference between uh, Prince, his royal badness, and Michael Jackson, that Prince has a certain sprezzatura, the sense that, oh, I could do so much more, um, but I might not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Well, Prince has such power and impact and sort of immediacy. Maybe maybe he's not the greatest example well, another example I bring up in the book is Dean Martin, mm-hmm. who did seem to sing, you know, as if he were almost bored. <laughs> uh, but it, but but it was a it was an aesthetic choice, you know, and he was he was doing his own kind of contract with you, and he was amazing at it, and it, and it had power. So what is that all about? 
And it still does, you know? too. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's sort of actually amazing uh, with Dean Martin the way that, you know, I mean, certainly during the era in which he was actively competing with rock and roll, it was very difficult for him. And he became kind of a, a niche artist and, and a little bit uh, degraded in people's uh, uh, eyes and ears. And now it's kind of like the, now he really is an embodiment of a certain kind of cool. You play Dean sure. Martin songs to indicate that you sort of get it. Yeah. But that that song, Keep Knocking But You Can't Come In, as Tommy Duncan sings it, is almost like an amazing meeting of style and content, you know, because essentially he's saying, like, you can keep, like, I'm not going to acknowledge you. You can keep knocking, but you can't come in. You you can't rattle me. I'm going to keep doing this my own way and, you know. uh, And Bob Wills keeps trying to knock him off course with these funny asides. Um, ben Ratliff, I want to end our conversation by talking a little bit about improvisation. I think it's one of the things that's uh, hard for a lot of people to understand. It's something that doesn't really exist in every single genre. Uh, maybe before we launch into a, a quick chat about it, let's hear Coleman Hawkins' Body and Soul. play so much more here. This is, I think this is one of the most difficult things for non-musicians to understand, is what improvisation is and how improvisation happens. But as we listen, uh, what do we listen for, Ben Ratliff? I guess the, 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 the spirit, the most basic spirit of, of improvisation is um, doing what you can while you can, and not, not waiting doing a lot within a little within a little span of time and showing that you know, showing your individual voice i am the per, i am the kind of person who makes a sound x you know making your making your mark writing your signature and different people do it in different ways I think also there's a lot of um, one of the things maybe that can connect the listener to the performer in improvisation is that so much of improvisation, maybe maybe that was a bad example because it it is so self-contained. But when you listen to jazz artists improvise, one of the things you realize is that they're listening. You know, there's so much listening that has to go on by the jazz artist. Everything that's anything that's happening behind him or her, but also everything that's that's come before in this performance and maybe even things that have come before this performance. That's true. Yeah, I mean, in in a typical jazz performance, all the musicians are listening to each other, and there's actually there's a lot of collective improvising going on sort of all the time. What we just heard, Coleman Hawkins playing Body and Soul, you're right, is, is a specific example of, it's sort of like a feature, a featurette, you know. Here's the, here's the great soloist on top of a rhythm section that's basically going to stay steady, like a, like a carpet for him to perform on. But it's, uh, 
It's an amazing improvisation. It follows a narrative arc. It makes use of its time so amazingly well. I mean, what, I think one of the things that's going on now that's very interesting to listen to as an extension of that within the world of hip-hop is freestyling. I happened to, uh, last night, I happened to be out at a, uh, a hip-hop event where there was a, a very good freestyle rapper, a guy who's uh, local around here named Self Suffice or Kaim, the rap poet. I was incredibly honored as a 61-year-old white guy that he actually name-checked me in the middle of one of his freestyles. I thought, oh, wow, that's, there's validation. But that's something that I think is sort of amazing to me. You know, I, I can sort of understand how a musician improvises, how a musician builds on musical ideas. In some ways, what hip-hop artists, what rap artists do when they freestyle, I almost can't even wrap my mind around how they're able to do it. Well, I think all improvisers uh, uh, construct their own uh, language of sort of signposts, mm-hmm. um, things that they can – they know what they can they, – they know ways to arrive at a certain place at a certain time. They, and they have a stockpile of words or phrases that they can use. They have a, a vocabulary of the known and then they infuse it with the unknown. That sounds about right. Well, Ben Ratliff, we've been talking about your book, Every Song Ever, 20 Ways to Listen in an Age of Musical Plenty. So since we're recording this in advance, you can pick anything you want and we'll end the show. We'll play out of the show with it. It could be something that's mentioned in your book. It could be something that uh, something that's not mentioned in your book, something we haven't even alluded to here. So you who listen to so much pop and jazz, you can pick our out song here. We'll add it in later. What's it going to be? All right. Well, let's go back to the slowness chapter, one of my favorites. Um, And let's do the great ballad by Sheik called At Last I Am Free. All right. Little Nile Rogers and Bernard Edwards for you. Let's end it there. Thank you so much, Ben Ratliff. Great book. Loads of fun. I hope you'll come back sometime. Thank you. 